0: Staying aware of the future trends and leveraging them as opposed to just resting on your laurels about this is what's working today. It's really, you have to be focused on what's what's ahead, what's the future.
1: Hello. Today I'm joined by Tom McFadden from McFadden Digital, uh, who is an SI and digital consulting uh, firm in the marketplace space. In fact, one of the leaders and most advanced and experienced companies when it comes to enterprise marketplaces. McFadden is a partner of Spryker. We uh, really enjoy partnering with them. Tom and his team have uh, produced and um, written a very uh, interesting marketplace book as well that I can uh, highly recommend, which explains all the background and fundamentals of an enterprise marketplace model. Tom is a frequent speaker on almost all relevant conference stages in the world and is sharing a lot of interesting backgrounds and insights into how enterprise marketplace models work, why companies increasingly try to build such marketplace models, some do's and some don'ts, and some interesting anecdotal stories as well. Listen in and enjoy. Let's go. Welcome to the newest episode of the Composable Commerce Leaders podcast. Uh, today with Tom McFadden from uh, an agency, which uh, has the same name, Talk, uh, McFadden Digital, right? Welcome, Tom.
0: Yes, Thanks, Boris. It's an honor to be on your podcast.
1: Cool. Let's, um, let's uh, get right into it. Uh, why don't you share with us uh, a little bit about yourself, your background and how you got into digital commerce? Sure, so uh, started McFadden
0: Digital 36 years ago. Uh, we've been doing digital transformation, although that wasn't the buzzword of the time back then. <laughs> but started doing uh, engineering document management, content, which evolved into content management. Content management evolved into commerce, and commerce is evolving into marketplaces as re- what we really see as the next generation of that. Uh, so we've uh, built a team of several hundred uh, e-commerce and marketplace professionals spread across the US, uh,
1: India, Brazil, and Europe. Okay, so 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 it's a global global business, right? And and you recently opened in Europe, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, okay, cool. uh, I've
0: got a great team in in, in uh, Germany, mm-hmm. Austria, and and sprinkled some other folks sprinkled throughout uh, other parts of uh, Western Europe as well. Very cool.
1: And you are doing the consulting piece and the implementation.
0: Correct. Uh, We start with, we say we're the full life cycle uh, advisor for the e-commerce and marketplace journey. So we'll start with strategy, budgeting, funding, allocation uh, for initiatives for getting uh, projects kicked off. Then do tech stack selection, uh, build, implementation, help with marketing launch, and then provide ongoing support and performance management.
1: And why do you think marketplaces became so popular nowadays? And like, it, it, I mean, same for us, right? It feels like, you know, everyone's calling and, and asking, you know, to, <laughs> to build a marketplace or to evolve from, you know, B2B digital commerce platform into becoming a marketplace. So, so why do you think that is?
0: Well, I think they see the results. And uh, uh, during my keynote this morning at B2B online, or yesterday, um, I talked about some of those numbers. So uh, B2B overall grew about 17% from 15% overall Uh, 17% for distributors and 11% for manufacturers, 21 to 23. Mm -hmm. Uh, E-commerce grew even faster than that, and marketplaces grew even faster than e-commerce. So when you look at the different channels, we see that uh, e-commerce is growing about three times, forecast for the future, three times the the top line uh, growth of B2B, and marketplaces are growing at seven times that, Mm -hmm. so uh, roughly doubling in revenue. Right. of the year. So we see from the big giants of Amazon and Alibaba to um, uh, incumbents like Granger, who started uh, their marketplace Zorro uh, in decades scaled from zero to a billion dollars of sales yeah. uh, with 10 million SKUs in their catalog. So uh, great examples of, of incumbents that have Leverage the marketplace business model and pure-play marketplaces that have come in and started disrupting the industry.
1: And what are the key the key business objectives they have besides growth, right? So, so especially in, in the current macro environment where you know people talk more about you know cost savings and, and efficiency, right? So, so so is there anything that that you would you can kind of distill out of all the conversations? is, is, is it like a more you know? Uh, more profitable way of, you know, growing your top line? Or is it just a less risky way because you don't have to carry like all the stock yourself? Or so, so what are the key business objectives? Yeah, It's a combination of those things. So certainly it can be much more nimble, less
0: uh, capital intensive, uh, lighter weight uh, business model. Uh, and the underlying difference is it's a platform business model versus a pipeline business model. A pipeline is... You know, a series of activities you have to do. You have to source goods, negotiate contracts, merchandise the goods, load them into your ERP, stock them in your distribution center, fulfillment center, um, fulfill the orders to the customers, support the customers, and all those are labor-intensive sequential activities that cost a lot for a distributor or or retailer to do those activities. Pipeline, you outsource almost all of that work to third parties that the suppliers that will source the good and uh, comply with the standard terms and conditions, uh, merchandise the goods, load them into the, the marketplace, uh, fulfill the orders, and sometimes provide support. So really you're you're going from a sequential uh, linear activity to a parallel activity with multiple sellers that can respond much more nimbly, um, scale catalogs, and do category expansion much more quickly without the capital of having to buy the inventory or, or hire merchandisers um, or hire um, distribution center staff or build out new uh, warehouses et etc much more capital light more nimble uh, more responsive business model
1: but it also sounds like this this would be a completely different uh, skill set which is required right so so it's not like oh, hey you know I have a team you know they 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 deal they did the e-commerce business here for me and build it up so yeah let's let them just do the, the, the marketplace piece right right it's true it it is a a two-sided marketplace
0: so you know distributors uh, retailers have always focused on attracting customers the buyers but in the ecosystem, you also have to track the sellers because they have to do a lot of that work. So it is a two-sided ecosystem in which you have to hire people who will recruit sellers, support sellers, help sellers onboard their catalogs into the system. Right. Uh, create incentives. Th- create incentives, exactly. Help them drive. You, know, d- you can make certain business decisions, how much data you want to share with the with the sellers. Um, uh, and that some of those same for example, merchandisers that have been working on first party inventory, owned inventory yeah. can work now on recruiting sellers, helping sellers on board and and doing the category expansion, yeah. you know, curation of of products. So they, there still can be roles for those people, uh, but it's not as labor intensive of a business model to scale.
1: And is there a precondition to 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 that? So is there something where you would say, hey, you know, you guys are, either not ready yet, or you know your business or your category or whatever doesn't doesn't support a marketplace model. You know maybe you just stay with B two B commerce or B two C commerce.
0: Well, I'd say the business prerequisite is having a differentiator. Uh, so. Uh, Trying to compete against the Amazons or Alibabas of the world or or in retail Walmarts of the world that have marketplaces and can sell everything to everybody uh, is very difficult. You have to really differentiate. Uh, They've kind of mastered that broad line, um, selling everything to everybody. So we see a lot of success in uh, vertical marketplaces where there's a a specific value add. It could be authentication. It could be uh, knowledge, special configuration. It could be credit terms, uh, special applications, special fulfillment uh, operations. That are needed for that vertical, and that's where you can really differentiate and and win against the others.
1: But th- does it then mean that B two B in general is maybe you know better suited for for marketplace models, right? Just by definition, because you know, you have it's, it's it's you know better slice into these industries, and there are more more, more, more niches that you can you certainly know, build. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we see a
0: lot of those. We've built uh, you know marketplaces for chemical distribution, marketplaces for fasteners, marketplaces for all sorts of unique um, offerings. Mm-hmm. Um, that you can that the operator marketplace operator can own that niche or be one of a few uh, that have a unique differentiation right
1: okay interesting and and I, I
0: think uh, there are different business models for manufacturers versus distributors or wholesalers mm-hmm. so your distributors and wholesalers operate a little bit more like a retailer where you want to do category expansion yeah. um, offer lots of goods from lots of sellers lots of providers yeah. versus a manufacturer uh, works on a little bit more of a focus on channel collaboration instead of channel avoiding channel conflict Mm -hmm. most uh, manufacturers rely on their distributors which they don't want to disintermediate or remove from the equation they need to maintain those relationships so we've seen manufacturers launch and we've helped uh, clients do this launch their own marketplace but the sellers in the manufacturers marketplace are their distributors Mm -hmm. so a customer can come in buy a good from say for example our client 3m buy uh, personal safety goods but then their distributors will fulfill the uh, the order, so that they're not you know, disintermediating or moving their the distribution channel. The <clears throat> the manufacturer gets customer information, gets some um, revenue from it. Uh, they get to build those relationships with the customer and that data, which is which they otherwise never cool. see yeah, who yeah. the end, the end customer. If a dis, if a distributor or wholesaler is in the middle of the supply chain, manufacturers have oftentimes have no insight into who their customer, is, yeah, their yeah. end
1: customer is. And McFadden became, I think it's fair to say that you, you, you became kind of a household name for like worldwide, right? For, for, for this marketplace consulting and implementation piece. So, so what are what are the use cases that you're the most, the most proud of if you think think of like the last 10, 15 years? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's
0: interesting. There, there are different applications in different different industries. Um, so um, a lot of, one of the, the largest... Um, Fulfillment companies in the world, Uh, we just launched a marketplace under some NDAs, so we can't say too much about that, but that is going to be a very disruptive um, business model. I think, uh, you know, just enabling organizations to differentiate themselves Mm -hmm. and scale so much more quickly is the the broadest solution um, that we have. So we started building these out. 15 years ago, they were all custom-built before yeah. great composable solutions like Spryker were available. Yeah. So we had to custom code and they were like three-year <laughs> projects, two or three-year <laughs> projects yeah, take, yeah. costing $10 million. Yeah. We yeah. built one for the US Army, that uh, marketplace in which they purchased over a billion dollars a year of, of IT goods yeah. from all the government contractors, government suppliers, yeah. Yeah. including Punch Out and whatnot. And uh, Teleflora is one we built uh, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, Scaled to support 20,000 uh, small mom and pop florists, which sell the flora goods or sell their own goods, uh, have more of a federated white label site of their own that they can that they can operate. Mm-hmm. But again, back then when we were building them 10, 15 years ago, they were all custom build, yeah. multi-year projects, six or seven figure, um, sorry, seven or eight figure, <laughs> <laughs> seven or eight <laughs> figure projects. Yeah. Now with great tools like Spryker, they can be you know, six figure, yeah. six month or less projects uh, to, to launch. Right. Uh, a
1: much better more robust solution. And speaking, speaking about composability so when was the first time you heard about Composal Commerce and, and I always like to ask you know uh, people about how, how do you explain Composal Commerce in your uh, uh, words right because everyone has has some analogies and, exa- right. <laughs> <laughs> and examples so, so how do you explain it if you have to explain it to someone? And-
0: I think the concept's been around for a while but hasn't been phrased as composable So uh, actually more than 20 years ago, Jeff Bezos made his famous mandate that uh, all um, data shall be made available through APIs, service calls essentially. Um, Somewhat of like a service oriented architecture, although that wasn't the phrase back then. And that helped Amazon scale to amazing capabilities with that service oriented API first architecture. Mm -hmm. Um, And not just Amazon, but AWS, again, leveraging that same concept. Um, uh, We started building out a headless uh, solutions 10, 12 years ago with uh, Sophia mm-hmm. service-oriented front-end architecture, I think <laughs> it stands for. Yeah. Old technology, nobody uses it anyway. It's essentially yeah. like a PWA, today's yeah. progressive web apps. Um, so we started doing that 10, 12 years ago. for uh, That was for uh, uh, one of the country's largest uh, food distributors. Mm-hmm. They helped build out a site that was doing about $10 billion a year of B2B sales. Mm-hmm. And their customers, restaurant operators, would go into their big steel freezers and lose their internet connection. Yeah. So they, they needed a system that could work offline, you know caching some information in the, the, the mobile website. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there have been different business that have driven the, the concept of composable, mm-hmm. but the idea of, of it as a business offering mm-hmm. um, really started coming out you know five years ago or so, I, I think and uh, um, combining not just the the headless, not just the API, but putting it all together in a a web uh, SaaS-based solution, Uh, especially uh, the the elements that we like where it's more extensible. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are lots of SaaS offerings, like we've done, unfortunately, (laughs) a lot of little Shopify sites, which is a nightmare to extend um, Shopify. It's great for a little D2C business doing under 10 million a year, maybe a great uh, solution for them. But when you want to extend something, the idea of more of a pass, a platform as a service, is much more extensible. We can get into those individual components, extend them, leverage them, swap things in and out. Uh, that's where we really like the capabilities to scale and customize and differentiate with Composable.
1: Yeah, and I agree. This is this is the reason why you know we, we provide like this product platform as a pass, you know, and not not, uh, not a SaaS. Uh, you know, the question that I get asked a lot when I when I'm in meetings with customers, especially with with you know with the business side of the house, is you know, why would I care, right? So people are like, because our industry is very good in coming up with all these new terms, right? And as you said, right, uh, often it's kind of recycling, you know, concepts and architectures and frameworks that, you know, already existed like 10, 15, 20 right. years ago <laughs> under different names, right? right. So, so um, and, and, you know, when I'm with, with sales and marketing people, you know, they, hey, this is great, right? And I understand it and all your examples of Lego bricks and, you know... Uh, but why would I care right so how, how does it help me you know to which business metric does it help you know to 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 impact or to influence so so what what is your answer to that
0: I'd say overall business nimbleness and that's hard to put a specific number around that <laughs> as a quantifiable metric but but I think the concept of minimizing technical debt and ability to affect change quickly mm-hmm. uh, you know, easy ease of extensibility you know in the days when we were building big uh, monolithic sites that you know a dozen or more of them we, we built scaled to over a billion dollars a year. Yeah. But the problem with those monolithic architectures was it would take two months to do a release. Yeah. So if the business wants to change something, a UX uh, element or um, any feature,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the whole cycle of testing a gigantic monolith, uh, launching it, running through the full testing uh, QA, staging, deployment cycle, would usually be two months. Maybe on a smaller, more nimble company, could get it under that yeah, yeah. Um, a month. Uh, but most typically, we saw two plus months for mm-hmm. release released schedules on updates, uh, and, and even the migration path. When we would see um, clients migrate from one monolith to another monolith, that would be a two to three year exercise. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about in the days of you know, Hybris on-prem, ATG on-prem, Oracle Commerce on-prem, Webster Commerce, HCL on-prem. Yeah. Um, just very, very slow and lots of technical debt that would build up. So. Um, there would always be these things that need to be fixed, need to be fixed, and oh, but we need to do this feature. So the teams never got around to fixing the technical debt and it just became so challenging to extend or to do any business change. So, the- so this
1: results in what for the business? So if I'm if I'm on a marketing side or, or sales side, so so is it a, like time to value that, that, you know, because these are all technical arguments, right? Right, right. So if I'm a meta, uh, then for me it translates into... I have to wait longer for features that, you know, I need to build right. for my customers, right? Or it's maybe more expensive, or, you know, I can't, I can't maybe uh, plug in, you know, more modern service providers can not change my payment, can kind of add a better search, right? right. So, so
0: time to value. That's a, probably the best, uh, best way of quantifying nimbleness. It's how long it takes when the business asks for a new feature and the, the IT team or the outsource team has to come back with an answer of, oh, that's going to be six months or four months. That's what the business wants. They want to see, can we do that in a week or a month? or shorter timeframes, depending on what it is. And have
1: you, like, especially given the the experience that you had with, with, you know, the legacy monolithic platforms, have you seen now within your customer base that uh, there is like quantifiable you know, tangible, like, you know, success and results from from applying a Composal Commerce approach versus, you know, what they had before. Because I think this is also what what Gardner refers to when they say, you know, it might take some more years, you know, to to really see the impact. And I think they they also went into this concept uh, uh, hoping or thinking that it will be adopted faster, right? And now they see it might take another three, five years to to, to see, you know, broad adoption. Uh, And what they also say is that, so far, because of the concept being being still so 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 new, there is not not this full life cycle of like five to seven years of someone being on the composer platform, who you could then can take and compare like for like and say, okay, you know this is the business, you know seven years of composer commerce experience. This is the TCO. Let's compare it to a similar business or even the same business, you know TCO like on a different platform, right? So right. so so this is like something that that yeah, I'm always interested in whether I already within your existing customer base, you see success, and you see companies coming back saying, yeah, Tom, thanks, you know, you recommended me, you know, to, <laughs> to move to Composable. My life is much better now. Yeah,
0: and Gartner, I think, said that um, <clears throat> by next year, Composable, there's that adopt Composable should be able to cut their IT support costs in half for their SaaS system. So that <clears throat> that in itself is justification for the the, the move to Composable. Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a big bang. We're switching everything to Composable. The Composable. Idea of composable and components is you can implement certain elements first. It's the we're going to move the, the PIM or the catalog management or the cart or the uh, the, the site search or uh, configure price quote CPQ other um, elements over into a composable um, element piece by piece. So that's that's one nice. That's oftentimes a way of uh, for companies that want to migrate off of a legacy you know monolith. Yeah. Um, not going to wait you. Know, Couple of years to do it. We can do you know sections at a time within three months or six months, right. uh, and and slowly become composable. We're not going to be overnight become one hundred
1: percent composable. And, and, and it's actually interesting. Like throughout the last two days, we are we are here in, in uh, West Palm Beach to be online, right? So the conversations I had, you know, were exactly the same. People, you know, came saying, "Look, I I still have my my hybrids on my ATG, you know, for you know budgeting reasons. You know, I I just even if I wanted, I can't." I can't touch it, you know. For the next like twelve months, eighteen months, this will not be a priority. However, you know, I want to invest into you know uh, uh, digital sales rooms. I want to invest into you know RFQ. I want to invest. So they have use cases they would want or they need to build, right? While they can't touch you know the legacy system, so they need you know a different approach. You know, buying a system which you know brings this composability to to uh, to them, right? And enables right. them to start building use cases without questioning, you know the. Uh, the incumbent system,
0: right? It is nice that Spryker does offer the full package, though. You've got e-commerce plus OMS plus marketplace plus other capabilities that yeah. come in one package. But each of those components is can be implemented piece by piece, right? Exactly,
1: exactly. And um, you know, in regards to, to uh, the qualification uh, criteria, pretty much like uh, the the marketplace um, question, right? So, are there companies who you would you know, meant not, you know, to look in, or not yet to look into a composal approach, you know, probably, you know, with, with um, uh, telling them that it, it might be a risky, maybe even more expensive way of doing things, right? Versus what are the the, the, the preconditions for someone, you know, uh, to, to, who, who, who you would clearly recommend to go down this, 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 right. this route? Right.
0: Well, marketplaces are a, somewhat an unstoppable force in the market, changing, you know, growing more than doubling every year in, in total uh, Dollar value, I think, uh, close to 100 uh, billion uh, last year uh, in the B2B side of of the space. So, everyone needs to have some marketplace strategy. It may not be operating your own marketplace, and maybe being a seller on a marketplace. And a lot of you know, D2C brands started that way. You know, would start selling on Amazon or Alibaba or other uh, channels, then launch their own D2C, and then perhaps they get to a scale where they want to launch their own marketplace. Uh, I, I think it's important to have like mentioned earlier a differentiation when you're uh, if you're going to launch a marketplace that you're by which you're going to attract the sellers and attract the buyers again both sides of the ecosystem and a certain level of scale right. if you're within a certain niche your your dollar volume or catalog skew count volume uh, may be lower than in other verticals um, in other specific niches or segments but uh, vertical marketplaces as I said is going to be a, a real Power for the future, and and it's a chance for a, a winner take all or, or Algopoly of where several um, providers kind of dominate that that space.
1: And what is a good framework of uh, or for deciding whether you should be rather a merchant on someone's marketplace or you know, operate a marketplace yourself?
0: Uh, so we actually defined a marketplace maturity model, which is a five-tier step, similar to CMM, CMMI capability maturity model. Um, which first tier is first-party inventory, where you're selling, in, you know, e-commerce, much like it's been done for a quarter century. Mm-hmm. Um, second tier is dropship, which is where you may want to include or add third parties that are going to uh, dropship or do the fulfillment. You as an operator, you still. Um, source the goods negotiate contracts you set the price to the customer you load them into your own catalog uh, but somebody else does the fulfillment now the third tier that maturity model uh, 3p marketplace is when you have third parties that do the do the merchandising do the uploading to the catalog Uh, they do the fulfillment they do support Um, that's really where you get into a full platforms model and then levels above that quantifiable um, uh, quantified management and Optimization, much like CMM, CMMI, uh, are the different stages and tiers along there. Yeah. Um, again, I think to, to uh, give some broad ranges, you know, scale of, of um, the business is important. So we've, we've built some marketplaces for very specialized niche mm-hmm. companies that are in the $10 to $100 million total top line GMV gross merchandise value or top line sales. Right. Um, and then people who want to offer or compete in a broader uh, category. Um, like MRO or one of the more um, popular B two B distribution categories, uh, you probably have to be in that uh, above hundred million, probably in the multi billion dollar top line sales to to compete effectively against others.
1: And what what I what what we are hearing more and more is that, and, and you know, just referring back to what you just said about uh, uh, competition, that. Uh, companies are also willing to team up. Like so, this is something which is very interesting, right? Even even if they are competitors, I mean, we have a couple of you know customers in the automotive space or in other industries as well, uh, who you know would be actually competitors, right? But because of every single one of them would be lacking maybe to your point like about differentiation, would be lacking a differentiation, right? Uh, themselves and the customer acquisition cost and the you know IT investments that they would have to to do and and, and, and you know, to invest themselves. They would go for a full-fledged, you know, digital commerce business model themselves and it, it, they just can't afford it, right? So they would then team up and form joint ventures and then say, okay, look, you know, this customer, you know, this is the typical... You know buying journey and this is a typical average order card they have and they actually would have product like MRO is another good example They would have you know your tools and they would have maybe our construction materials and you know Let's put it all together So that there is value in differentiation created for the customer because they can place one transaction right? It's easier there's one payment. So, so we solve a relevant problem for the customer, right? right. Uh, uh, and, and we solve a problem for us as well where you know teaming up and building a joint venture can also be a good strategy
0: Yes, and there are different approaches to that to make it more successful based on the business dynamics. If some of these started in the late 90s, early 2000s, the exchanges of purchasing, which somewhat you can say Ariba or Coupa kind of got into that that procurement side of e-procurement or the group purchasing organizations. But uh, when these groups come together, they can structure the business model around different monetization approaches. The most typical uh, monetization model most people know about is a commission. So I sell something on on Amazon, I pay 15%, 30%, 50%, whatever that category has a specific uh, um, commission structure on. Whether it can be lead fees, subscription fees, um, no commission fee at all, you just have a subscription to be a member on that marketplace. Um, Some incentivize um, avoiding platform leakage, meaning the seller starts going directly to the uh, the buyer mm-hmm. and disintermediates the marketplace. So, there are a lot of different levers you can pull on the, the business model to, uh, based on what the goals of the marketplace operator are. Mm-hmm. If it is to support a collection of competitors, like uh, there are quite a few uh, um, steel marketplaces. So, for yeah. raw m- metals, uh, materials exchanges yeah. that operate, uh, especially in Europe. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. Klöckner, yeah. I think, did. Exactly, that's now. one of really, them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good example. Fantastic. Uh, and and um, how how did the conversation change? Maybe in the last you know eighteen to twenty four months, especially given you know what's going on in the world. You know, uh, did it change at all? Like for you? So so when you when you when you kind of reflect on, you know, the customer meetings, what they come come to you with, you know, what the business requirements are, what you know, DRI expectations are, the budgets are, or maybe the selection of the actual use cases. Uh, any any change that you noticed?
0: There's been a lot more education about marketplaces. Five, 10 years ago, when we were talking about this, people were like, what, eBay? I'm not gonna sell stuff, use stuff on eBay. (laughs) That's what people thought about it. Or no, I don't wanna be just a seller on Amazon. That there's more awareness of becoming an operator of a marketplace. And when we start seeing successes, like talking about Granger and Zorro, you know, scaling to a billion dollars in 10 years as a marketplace. Lots of uh, companies that have success, incumbents or new startups, uh, there's, I think, a uh, DC three hundred and sixty has a database of five hundred B two B marketplaces. We start seeing all those organizations doing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of GMV on their own marketplace on B two B marketplaces. Mm-hmm. People have a lot more awareness of it, and it's it's uh, even though we've tried to do a lot of education with our our five know, hundred page book and and other white papers we publish all the time, yeah. the uh, the. Organizations are becoming much more aware of it, and it's starting to become a uh, board level or uh, uh, executive office level discussion about what are we doing about the marketplace business model.
1: Right. Right. And by the way, I can recommend this book. I mean, the book is great. Uh, I think yeah, it's it's, it's a you know it's a must must read for everyone interested in, uh, in the marketplace business. Uh, do, do you actually have uh, some form of you know training or academy as well for for the people running a marketplace? Right. Because I think like what we also. Uh, c- Kind of get confronted with is that there are so many like you know different metrics different kpis different ways of you know thinking you know, planning this business that and, and there is no traditional you know there's no traditional school or, or or you know training for for right. you know operating and and planning and budgeting for uh, and marketing and creating these these flywheels and incentive programs. So, do, do you have any kind of trainings or academy that you provide? To,
0: sure, to... we do. We do have actually a lot of uh, presentations we've done at uh, both B two B sessions from B two B Online and NAW and MDM Shift and uh, uh, Envision B two B, where we've uh, taught you know two hour master classes around marketplaces. Yeah. So a lot of that's available on on YouTube or on our, our McFadden.com website, um, and uh, we do as part of our strategy engagements, which may range from several weeks to several months. With some of our clients, we do a lot of that research and business modeling and financial modeling, um, looking at what are the category expansion areas, what are potential commission structures, what are the terms and conditions we want to help our, we want to set for sellers on our marketplace. Mm -hmm. So that uh, getting deeper than those couple hours of initial training um, is typically what we do in our strategy engagements with our clients.
1: Uh, Maybe a dedicated like you know class and certification would also be a cool idea. We do actually have a a certification. Yeah, we haven't haven't (laughs) publicly
0: launched it yet, but look for that to come soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this (laughs) based on the book. This is super
1: important. Yeah, you know, it's it's. People are, people are really lost, right? And then, you know, they, they would just put it on throw like a digital commerce or an e-commerce manager, you know, onto it. And you clearly see that there was a gap of, you know, knowledge and experience. So,
0: and, and there is a lot of business transformation that happens. It is transforming the business from, again, pipeline business to platform business. And yeah, the importance of, for example, having a seller recruitment team is something that often gets um, you know, forgotten or not doesn't get the attention it deserves. Yeah, recruitment
1: and, and also management, right? So management. you keep them keep them happy and you know engaged right. with them. And, and uh, the concept of like going, going back to composability a little bit. So so the, the concept of composable commerce is it so do you see this equally being, you know, represented in the marketplace space as is it in a B2B B2C digital commerce space? Definitely. And and there are certain needs that that uh, B2B
0: organizations have that B2C organizations don't have, and the, don't have those requirements. And the composable approach makes a lot more sense. Where you may have more complex catalogs, with the, you know, uh, having integrating a composable PIM into the architecture, or you have RFQ request for quote or CPQ configure price quote capability. You need to plug in those components into the into the architecture, and perhaps in a marketplace, extend that out to uh, anonymize the seller and the buyer. Uh, so that those transactions can happen like an, a quote can go go out whereby the the seller and the buyer don't know who they are but you're getting the goods at a certain price and um, maintaining that throughout the, the system um, the ability to plug in those things contract-based pricing uh, managing that uh, organizational modeling of you know, who the uh, the people that can request uh, purchases who approves the purchases who handles the payment of the purchases all that within a b2b buying
1: organization is, you know, product product master data or, or unifying, consolidating the catalog. I was out for, for dinner with someone yesterday, and from from a very exciting you know inter- industry, and they're looking to, to build a you know I think very transformational marketplace. And, and their challenge is, as, as often, it unify. So, so there is no notion of this master catalog, you know, in this industry yet. So you know, it's right. a very distributed uh, landscape of suppliers. So even before you know putting anything up kind of for, for sale, right, and online, you know, the, the first challenge they have is, you know, getting these thousands of suppliers uh, uh, somehow unified and creating this this master record, you know, catalog first, right, yeah. where, you know, they would have to map, like, all these, you know, attributes and, and, and create this golden record, uh, so to say, for the industry, which, yeah. which, which does not exist yet, right?
0: That's and one w- of the first...
1: W- w- which in itself will be already a huge value proposition, right? That there will be for the first time for the specific a uh, big, big multi-trillion dollar <laughs> niche, so to say, right? There will be a unified, you know, catalog. And, and then you can put it online and then start, start transacting.
0: Yeah, so that's usually one of the first phases of a project is defining the taxonomy. Uh, the taxonomy can include the catalog hierarchy, how we're gonna structure our catalog at the top level, um, the data attributes, so what are the attributes, what are the value pairs? So colors can be blue, light blue, dark blue, navy blue, baby blue, or, or what, are you gonna, what are you gonna harmonize that uh, define as the standard colors, and then that process of actually harmonizing dozens, hundreds, or thousands of se- different sellers who have their own catalog hierarchy, their own attributes for products, and their own value pairs of what they define as the values for those, those attributes. Uh, that data harmonization is part of the, the catalog ingestion process. And to do it at scale, that's where bringing in some AI tools can really help. So that attribute mapping, you know, category mapping, uh, filtering down the attribute pairs at scale uh, definitely helps to quickly onboard sellers.
1: Is, is this the, area the AI being the most helpful in context of marketplace at the moment?
0: Certainly, one of them, um, you know, catalog harmonization. A second is uh, the generative AI capabilities of doing merchandising enrichment. Mm-hmm. So you may get you know, from some distrib- some suppliers, just a, you know a forty-character <laughs> ERP uh, code <laughs> <laughs> that you need to um, perhaps have a Gen AI engine look at a you know a product description sheet. A, um, uh, a spec sheet or something like that and and pull out a narrative SEO optimized product description mm-hmm. plus pull out the the values that need to go into the catalog as attributes for that product mm-hmm. um, so catalog enrichment both from a human readable you know natural language processing uh, SEO. SEO optimized text that person's going to read as well as the structured data that goes into the, the catalog
1: and do you think this is something that at least for the foreseeable future will uh, it can be solved with Existing, you know, open, uh, you know, APIs and AI uh, models available, or is this something where you would expect your customers or maybe companies like you to, to go much deeper or as deep as you know, owning and building you know, an own kind of language model for that and you know, providing this as a service? Uh, so, so.
0: It's certainly the, the big uh, GPT um, or um, LLM uh, offerings from you know Google Bard and OpenAI's uh, ChatGPT can help with that. Um, it's interesting that sellers on Amazon have been using this technology for several years. Um, Jarvis, I think, is one of the tools that they've been uh, using for enhanced merchandising to sell on, uh, on Amazon. So the, the application of this has existed in some of these sellers that do $100 million or a $1 billion selling product on Amazon. They've optimized their ability to quickly launch new products, uh, do the merchandising, and fine-tune that.
1: Uh, based on machine learning. Okay, so so because this is a question that we get asked, you know, a lot. I mean, everyone talks about AI, right? And companies don't know, you know, should they, you know, deep dive into this and start investing in building up capabilities, or is, is maybe the first step, you know, much, is, is there maybe a more, much more pragmatic first step they could they could have, you know, by just leveraging already existing uh, existing APIs and existing tools, right? Or, which which might be a much leaner and faster faster approach.
0: Yeah, certainly there are, there are available
1: tools out there.
0: Um, another area for the for the operator is the rec- automated recommendations, and there have been you know for years a lot of companies have definitely used machine learning for the you, know, you may also like or cross sell, upsell, substitute sell yeah. for for their catalog. That's certainly another area where there are a lot of existing tools available on the market. Mm-hmm. Um, the generative AI merchandising may be a little bit more uh, customization of some of these tools, depending on. Um, your specific catalog and also ensuring that your your catalog and your information does not go out into the public domain yeah. as often happens with chat GPT
1: yeah yeah I think this is, this is a very critical and maybe moving on to a few personal questions um, you know given given your experience like you know last 20 25 years in that, in the that industry is, is there any is there any advice that you would you know uh, like to give your your past self <laughs> <laughs> if, if you could go back in time uh, what would it be um, definitely
0: staying aware of the future trends and leveraging them as opposed to just resting on your laurels about this is what's working today it's really you have to be focused on what's what's ahead what's the future Um, sometimes uh, and we've made this mistake sometimes getting flat-footed with well this is working well now we've been doing lots of great uh, monolithic projects but if that's not the future and that's not where the industry is going you're going to be left uh, behind the curve if you don't adopt to the more modern approaches. And that's where we started pivoting into more of the the Composable um, solutions, as well as the the differentiated business offerings, where um, e-commerce has become, to some extent, table stakes now. Uh, Differentiation can be the ability to quickly add in new features into your e-commerce, like Composable uh, gives you the opportunity to do so, or Marketplace, which is a whole new business model. So we really focused pretty heavily on the, the Marketplace side of
1: things about 10 years ago. As as the real business transformation offering, and was there something throughout your career that you would say you, you dramatically underestimated, like in the last five or ten years? And and and, and was there something that you got exactly right? So where you, now looking <laughs> back, you would be like, hey, you know, this, this is you know what, what I predicted, and it turned out exactly the. the, the... I don't say we. I wouldn't say <laughs> get anything exactly right.
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, um, the. Uh, it definitely did not expect the sudden surge in AI. And we again started seeing that uh, being used by marketplace sellers several years ago. Um, you know, it's one of those things I, I studied in college back 40 years ago, 35 years <laughs> ago, and uh, it never got the buzz that it was going to get. Um, so that, that is definitely one of these things that's going quickly. We probably and some things get a little bit overhyped. You know, NFTs and Metaverse uh, and AR, uh, AR, augmented reality, virtual reality, mm-hmm. uh, have been hyped quite a bit for quite a while. Uh, NFTs, I think, have, have peaked and uh, gone into that valley of disillusionment, using the Gartner hype curve <laughs> term. Yeah. Maybe there'll be some business applications for them at some point, but um, Metaverse probably got a little bit overhyped and not realized as a as a business value. Mm-hmm. AI, I think, is definitely being overhyped a lot, but I think there is also equal amount of value, business value that can be derived from it. Like we talked about automated recommendations, catalog harmonization, um, uh, enhanced merchandising, certainly a lot of tools in which AI can be used as a as a tool so i definitely underestimated
1: how quickly ai was going to ramp up in the last year yeah i think it, it, it will be much more fundamental maybe more, more disruptive than you know the internet you know <laughs> was and i think if you look into every single department even like within our companies right i guess like you know the, the way how sales and marketing and product management and and engineering is being done is already Quite heavily impacted and and, and will be uh, will be impacted,
0: and and perhaps looking forward, I think there will probably be additional standards that make composable more interoperable. Uh, much like we've seen, you know, in the past, some of the transformative standards like HTTP, HTML, SSL, XML, JSON, you know, of yeah. uh, these all these standards that have helped to make things more um, composable. I think yeah. there will be even more of those, and those will become even more important as standards for. You know, connecting your 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 PIM with your OMS, with your CPQ, yeah. with your commerce, with your uh, CMS. And you're exactly right,
1: right? I mean, at the end of the day, customers, especially kind of enterprise customers, they're buying a solution which is always composed out of like even you know when I look into our customer base, typically you know the amount of third party services and systems you know can be as much as like 20, 30 different you know systems, uh, right? Systems composed, right? Into, right, right, into, into one thing. So, um, and and yeah, the NFT topic is actually interesting. I, I. I you know, I never. I have a friend who runs who runs a burger burger uh, a chain. You could say he has, a, yeah. you know, a few restaurants, and he's a very down to earth guy. Has nothing to do with technology, nothing to do with the internet. You know, and then we had a dinner with him the other day, and and then he told me that instead of opening up another real burger uh, a restaurant, he he opened kind of a burger restaurant in. Uh, uh, in, in the metaverse, right? And he, <laughs> he was and he was selling kind of you know uh virtual virtual <laughs> yeah, burgers right yeah <laughs> and then uh yeah create so so this was like you know for me when I was thinking about this I was like okay so someone who would take like I don't know how much it takes to open a restaurant like a hundred thousand dollars maybe so it's uh, taking a hundred thousand right and, and rather invest this into building a digital and he bought a good property you know at the main street so so it was <laughs> like you know this was so surreal you know to have to and, when he, was, when he was telling me that, you know, the virtual avatars would show up and eat the virtual burger, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the time when you did feel old. So. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, essentially, we, we started playing around with that um, in Second Life, like I think it was 18 or 20 years ago when that first you know, metaverse uh, style came out in World of Warcraft and some of these other virtual worlds started popping up 18 years ago or so, I think it was for Second Life. Yeah. Um, never really took off. Um, it seems to have a lot more momentum now, and more hands are investing money into it. But
1: yeah,
0: I'm a little, still a little bit skeptical about the financial return on it, besides branding. <laughs> besides
1: branding, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and given all the change which is happening, I'm, I'm curious, you know, to um, to learn more about how how did your your hiring strategy change, if at all? So if you like, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, hiring like uh, people for sales, for consulting, for engineering, is is, is, is there anything that you would not compromise on going forward in terms of like skills or traits when you interview someone which you now feel like are more relevant, you know, for the future that like two, three, four years ago you would have said, uh, you know, this may be nice to have? I think the uh, uh, opportunity to hire somebody
0: to do the same thing over and over again for many years, that's that was something we used to do because, you know, the the life of a certain technology stack, like, like back in ATG, you know, that was a decade or 15 years, the life of that product. So hire somebody they know ATG and they can do ATG for a decade. Yeah. That time has passed. The technology changes so much that people have to be learning and learning a new skill and constantly have that thirst to learn new technology, new skills, new business models as well, um, is, is more important than having you know, five years of experience doing something, it's how quickly have you learned new technologies every year? Yeah. So yeah. That, that, that is certainly something more, more important. And we've become, yeah, as a globally distributed company, we, we started doing global delivery 20 years ago during the, the dot-com bust, um, started our indie operations, then uh, Brazil 10 years ago. So our desire for or need for people to be in the office is almost zero.
1: Yeah, so, so, so you, anywhere so you, in the world. You,
0: do you still maintain uh, offices? Office we office? we do. We have okay. five offices, which okay. <laughs> are mostly empty most of the time. <laughs> but yeah. now and then, when you need to get people together, you still yeah, you yeah. still go in there. Probably not the best use of money, but. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, I think, like, you know, a hybrid model uh, is something that, that, you know, we figured out makes a lot of sense. I think you need to bring people together, but you, you it doesn't make sense to bring them together to do routine type of tasks, right? So just writing code or doing sales calls, right? you right. might be doing, you know, much more productively. Right. You know, it, but but coming together and brainstorming and working or be, building relationships, you know, social interaction. Right. Having clients come in do some clients, training. exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I agree, by the way, with, with this, what you call like a thirst and we call it intellectual curiosity. I think this is kind of the, this hire for potential experience is super important, right? So that you have someone who has this curiosity uh, and, and is open-minded and does not want to just come in, even maybe someone who have enjoyed great success in the past uh, uh, and come in and play the playbook, you know, of whatever marketing, sales, engineering, this right. person, <laughs> this person <laughs> might have at hand. Right. Because one day the, the, there will be a zero, an empty page, right? And then. Uh, this is kind of the the, the day that I'm always uh, interested in, you know, seeing and see from there on, you know, how this person will, will adapt or not, right?
0: Uh, yeah, yep. and, and how much of that they've done on their own, not. Not that their employer mandated they do it, but how much have they done on their own, of their own free will, of their own personal intellectual curiosity? Yes, as first, you said. yeah, yeah.
1: And maybe last question, uh, uh, Tom, for today: uh, Is there any recommendation for for a great, you know, book or blog that you have, like something that you know inspired you? Like, except you, you except you, you, my you, you, book, which <laughs> I recommend. But there we go,
0: so you don't um, have marketplace best practices. <laughs> but uh, uh, well, actually, one of the if you want to really learn about the um, the. Underlying platform business model. Uh, there was a great book written about ten years ago by several uh, MIT uh, professors from uh, uh, Boston University, Dartmouth, and another fellow called Platform Revolution. Mm-hmm. So that was really, I think, the defining moment, and we reference it in our book uh, of quantifying uh, what a platform business model is. Mm-hmm. And they use very kind of academic terms. You know, it's a nexus of rules. It's a um, positive uh, network effects. Uh, a number of different uh, specifics like that, which we try to um, explain a little bit more in layman terms in our book, um, but that was to me a, a groundbreaking explanation of the difference of pipeline versus platform. And all that models. is still relevant, right? So, still relevant, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten years later,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Great book. Yeah. Wonderful. Tom, thank you very much for oh, thank you. being Mars, on the podcast. It. Uh, was, I think, very, very, very insightful. And, uh, yeah, good luck with your global expansion and uh, educating the world on, on <laughs> marketplace and platform businesses. Uh-huh. Uh, th- thank you. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Cool. Thanks. Thank you.